Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Previously on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. Well, we have one suspect right now. There have been many people suspected along the way, but we do have one suspect. We don't know the name. Uh, We know that it's a man. I mean, that that can happen. I mean, what they're trying to say is they have DNA and they have enough to test one more time and then then it's gone. Well, if if they have it, the the tests are good enough now that you're going to get the best result than you've ever had. Episode 7, A Time to Live. When Martha Petrie, Mary Petrie's twin sister, spoke to Columbus police toward the end of 2021, they told her they expected to be able to give her an update on their investigation in two months. That would have been January 2022. But January 2022 came and went, and there was no news from the Columbus police, despite emails and calls from Martha asking for updates. Then, two more months passed, still with no news. So Martha wrote a more forceful email to Sergeant Terry McConnell to ask what was going on. And this time, she got a detailed email back. Here's a summary of what he said. Our department will be meeting with the Ohio Familial DNA Board in May. We'll be asking the board to allow us to conduct a familial DNA search if we get this approval, which we fully expect, What that means is we'll be able to look for any matches in the National DNA Index System to male relatives of the unknown male DNA that we recovered at the crime scene. He also told Martha that they were separately pursuing forensic genealogy. That's the technology we discussed with James Renner in the last episode, where you're searching ancestry sites for relatives. But he said there was one final hurdle they had to clear before that could happen. Okay, that's some pretty dense and technical information, so let me try to unpack it a bit. A familial DNA search. That sounds kind of the same as a forensic genealogy search, right? Nope, it's similar but different. A familial DNA search is where police take a DNA profile and look for family matches, hence that term familial, in offender databases, usually at the state level. Those databases contain DNA profiles that are either left behind at crime scenes or collected from convicted felons. What you're looking for in a familial search is not the perpetrator him or herself, but relatives of the perpetrator. But since this is an offender database, the matches are of course going to be limited only to relatives who were also offenders. Forensic genealogy casts a wider net looking at a general population who voluntarily choose to upload their DNA profiles to Ancestry websites. When police want to use federal funding for forensic genealogy, which is what it sounds like is happening here, they have to follow certain protocols. No surprise, right? Federal money equals lots of rules. Well, one of the first requirements for federal funding 
is that you have to do those offender database searches first. Here's how it works, as explained to me by Mary Weston. Weston supervises a unit in the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office in Cleveland that uses DNA to solve violent crimes and sexual assaults. Generally, when we are reviewing a cold case, the first question we're going to be asking ourselves is, is there already a profile in CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System? That's a check in this case. As we've heard in this podcast, Columbus Police submitted a profile to Ohio's DNA Index System about 15 years ago, and that profile has never hit. But Weston told me, both in terms of collecting samples and analyzing them, DNA technology has evolved a lot in the past 15 years. Newer technology may be able to produce a stronger profile from the evidence that could be re-uploaded to CODIS that's more likely to match. So in this case, analysts from both local and state crime labs would likely recommend getting a new sample using current collection techniques. Starting from scratch, in other words, to give themselves the best possible chance of a match in offender databases. And if that turns up no hits, that, Weston said, is when labs will move on to a familial search. Now, Sergeant McConnell's email to Martha said that the police had to go before an Ohio familial DNA board to get approval for this kind of search. Mary Weston said her understanding of how a familial search gets cleared is a little different. My understanding is you don't have to go through a board to have approval anymore. You can uh, submit an application. The application is on the Ohio Attorney General's website. That application requires that investigators prove a few things. You have to be able to certify that you have exhausted reasonable leads, like, you know, leads that could be garnered through the traditional investigative methods. And it also has to be a violent crime causing serious injury or death. The murder of Mary and Bill obviously meets both of those requirements. Two more requirements are that investigators have to be reasonably certain that the DNA sample they have is from the perpetrator. And not from somebody who may have contributed to the crime scene in any other way. For example, in this case, a roommate or friend who could have left their DNA just from being present in Bill's apartment. Or an investigator back in 1970 who wasn't careful about what they touched because, well, DNA for solving cases wasn't even a thing back then. Another requirement, the suspect DNA sample has to be from a man because the state crime lab does familial DNA searches based on the male Y chromosome. So this is not a method that can be used if your suspect sample is female. That, too, lines up with what the Columbus police told us, that their suspect is male. Once the lab has that male DNA sample, they develop a profile based on the Y chromosome. Which uses up a little bit of the extract, by the way, because your lab will consume some of the DNA to produce this profile. There's that idea of using up DNA that the Columbus police talked to me and Martha about. Then that profile from your evidence is going to be compared against the profiles of all male offenders in the Ohio CODIS database. What's more, police are only allowed to follow up on investigating a matching male if he's a first-degree relative of the perpetrator, a father, a brother, or a son. If the search comes back with an uncle or a cousin or a nephew, police are out of luck. They can't track that person down for questioning or consider that as evidence against the suspect they already have. Now, there is a national DNA index system, a nationwide database of offender samples. But according to Weston, searches of that database are only for direct matches of the perpetrator. 
Contrary to what Sergeant McConnell had written to Martha, she said there's no national familial DNA search. Familial searches are only done at the state level. So do you know, can a state request that another state do a familial search of its database? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I can see why that would be useful, right? Like maybe our offender is traveling and really is in some other CODIS database. And I don't, and that has never occurred to me. And I don't know if you can do it. With all of those limitations that you're only searching in a single state database and only for first degree male relatives, and that you're using up part of your DNA sample to do that, I asked Mary Weston, why bother with a familial search? Why not jump right to forensic genealogy, which would also include non-offenders and female matches, and at a national level? She said, first of all, if you're planning to use federal funds to do forensic genealogy, which again, sounds like what's happening here, one of their requirements is that you do a familial search first. And that really leads us to the second question. It's that it's not, there's no cost out of pocket for law enforcement agencies to do a familial search. So, you know, it's, it costs our Ohio CODIS database uh, personnel money because they're doing your searches, but it's a free service for law enforcement agencies as opposed to, you know, several thousand dollars that a law enforcement agency is going to need to pay for genealogy. So Columbus police could have jumped right to a forensic genealogy search if they'd accepted funding from a private source, such as the Porchlight Project. That's the Ohio-based nonprofit that pays for DNA testing in cold cases. We heard about them in the last episode. And that privately funded genealogy search might have led to faster and broader results. But at least from Mary Weston's point of view, it was good practice to begin with a familial search which is exactly what Columbus police were doing. There's also the point police raised to me and Martha about the quantity of DNA they have and not wanting to use it all up. That now made sense if possibly the police first needed to submit a higher quality profile than they had in 2009 to qualify for the familial search. They had to make sure they had enough both for that and for the forensic genealogy search later on. After that email update to Martha in April 2022, the next update we got was in June 2022, and it was from my parents. My mom had heard from Nancy, her college roommate, the woman who ended up marrying Bill's roommate, Tom McGuigan, that the Columbus police had recently visited her and Tom at their house. They'd requested a DNA sample from Tom, and he willingly gave it. That suggested that Tom was likely one of the two people police told me and Martha they wanted to rule out as a suspect. And by Thanksgiving of that year, or about five months later, Martha found out the results from Sergeant McConnell. This is what he said. He went to wherever Tom McGuigan lived. Right. Live. And he conducted an interview and took his DNA sample, and he has ruled him out for sure as a suspect. Tom's DNA did not match the sperm sample taken from the bedspread, Martha said. And that sperm doesn't match Bill's sperm either. So that 
I think the sperm is the DNA link. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, yeah. The material evidence. This was pretty huge. We'd heard before that the police had ruled Tom out as a suspect, and that had also been reported as early as 1970 in news accounts. But now he'd also been ruled out using the latest DNA technology after voluntarily giving a sample of his own genetic material. But what Martha reported next was a little puzzling. McConnell had told her that he submitted some DNA to CODIS, the Ohio Combined Index System. And from there, they entered into another national database, and he will do the familial DNA search. Okay. The police had told Martha they planned to go before the Ohio Familial DNA Board in May for approval for a national familial DNA search. But now, in November, they were back to talking about looking for direct matches to Mary and Bill's killer in both the state and national offender databases. Mary Weston from the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office had told me that there's no such thing as a national familial DNA search. And there's no longer a need for board approval of state familial searches. So did this mean that Columbus police were unfamiliar with the current protocols and what types of familial searches are even available? Or did they know something that Mary Weston didn't? Whatever the case, it resulted in a delay of six months. Before we ended our call, Martha gave me a couple updates on how police were leaning in terms of their theory of the crime. First, McConnell had a very strong feeling about what would happen with the search of the National Offender Database. And he is sure that there is not going to be any hits on that hmm. because he is absolutely positively sure. I mean, he said, I'm so sure that that's not going to yield any results because he is absolutely convinced that the person who perpetrated these murders was a person who knew either Mary or Bill or both of them. So why is he certain that it was someone known to Mary and Bill? Because the violence of the murders. Most murders that are committed like that, that are violent, have some kind of grudge. That lines up with the theory of Dr. Renee Robinson, the medical examiner who reviewed the coroner reports and autopsy photos in episode three. That because of the violent intimacy of strangulation and the overall intensity of the attacks, there was a personal element here. And then why, do, why does the fact that the murder was known to them mean that there would be no hits in the CODIS database because this person was not a criminal this otherwise? Person was it, was... Not a, it was not a serial murderer. It was mm -hmm. not somebody who was murdering for money or mm -hmm. from gang violence or from any of that. This was okay. a person who, who had a grudge. It's a person who has an issue to resolve. Also, McConnell told Martha the police were leaning toward the same theory that Terry Kinderbader conveyed a couple episodes ago. She was the woman who shared a ride with Mary to Columbus and whose dad moved in criminal justice circles. That Bill's murder was taking place when Mary walked in. That Bill's murder was taking place when Mary walked in. 
I asked if we knew exactly why police believed that, or if it meant they believed Bill, rather than Mary, was the murderer's primary target. But Martha said McConnell didn't say. Martha and I weren't sure when we'd get our next update from the Columbus police, but it seemed like there was good reason to be hopeful the case could still be solved with DNA. Or at least that the police, despite the delays, were pursuing all the testing avenues they could. As we waited, I reached out to a woman named Donna Zenith. My name is Donna Zenith. I am the sister of Barbara Ann Blatnick, who, who died in 1987. I wanted to speak to Donna for two reasons. One, to hear about another example of how DNA testing could solve a cold case decades later. And two, to find out how it felt to get that resolution. Because that's what happened in this case. Donna's sister was murdered, the case went cold, and then it was solved 33 years later. Quickly, here are the details. Donna's sister, Barbara Blatnick of the Cleveland suburb of Garfield Heights, was murdered in 1987. she just turned 17 when she died, a high school junior who loved the bands ACDC and Led Zeppelin. Her body was found along the side of a road leading to Cuyahoga Valley National Park between Akron and Cleveland. She'd been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. The investigation stalled for decades, with no apparent leads. Then, in 2020, the likely killer was identified through forensic genealogy, organized and largely funded by the Porchlight Project. First of all, can I ask, how long did it take from raising money for the testing to getting the name of the murderer? Not even a year, I think. So what happened was I started a GoFundMe and posted it on Facebook because we wanted to help with the process, and I wanted to make sure her friends and her family could be part of solving the case, if you will. Donna raised $1,700 through that online campaign, and Porchlight paid the rest of the $6,000 total in testing costs. The killer's DNA was collected from underneath Barbara's fingernails and sent to a forensic genealogy lab in California. The lab came back fairly quickly with a name, James Sestownik, traced through a brother. He had no known connection to Barbara other than also having lived in Garfield Heights. What's more, Zasonic was still alive and living in Cleveland, not far from where Barbara and Donna had grown up. Maybe a week prior to him being arrested, they got a warrant to go get his DNA. And so they went to his house. He let them take his DNA. And that's how they confirmed it was him. Zasonic was indicted in Barbara's murder in May 2020. He entered a plea of not guilty but police and prosecutors were confident of a conviction. What did it feel like finally having a name and a face? It felt like I was punched in the stomach. You know, it's just the devil that we've been afraid of, this person we've been afraid of for 30 plus years. There's a face to him. Now you just relive the whole thing over again, but now with his face in it, does that make sense? What helped, she said, was knowing that Zastanik would eventually have his day in court and finally be held accountable for killing Barbara but the trial kept getting postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Zasonic was free on bond and moved into a relative's house in the country, where he eventually started getting hospice care for cancer. In August 2021, two months before he was to go to trial, 
he died. So it's kind of like, you know, excuse my language, he, he just f***ed us at every turn, you know? He killed my sister, then, you know, we find him, and then he goes unbound and he lives in this beautiful house in the country, you know? And that's how he gets to die and live out his life. And then he dies and he doesn't even tell us what happened. What happened that, my, that you had to literally beat my sister to death. Why? She was 17 years old, you know, not even. She had just turned 17. What, what, what did she do to deserve that? She was just a kid, you know? I just, I, I never got my answers why he did that. There's no closure. But Donna Zenith said there has been one aspect of findings astonic that made the effort worthwhile. His name, his reputation is tarnished. He's not going to die as the sweet grandpa they all thought he was. So we did change his legacy. We changed his legacy to what it should have been. Two things stuck with me from this interview. One, forensic genealogy in this case led to answers in less than a year. In part, Donna Zenith told me, because there were close matches to the killer in databases, but also in part because the police department working the case was so open to moving ahead with forensic genealogy using private funding. It had now been three years since I'd first reached out to Martha Petrie and the Columbus police and two years since she had reached out to them, asking about forensic genealogy being a possible way to solve this case. And we still had no idea when or if the police would ever pursue that route. Two, the dismissive way that Donna Zena spoke about the idea of closure, I knew that wasn't unusual, even for homicide survivors who do get more answers than she did. Martha Petrie and Pat Sprout had talked to me about how even if there were ever answers in this case, it wouldn't necessarily bring peace. I wanted to know, what is it really we seek when we pursue a cold case? And if closure isn't possible, how and to what degree can survivors benefit from having names and faces and explanations? I'm Marilyn Armour, and I'm professional emerita at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Marilyn Armour has spent a lot of her career studying the impacts of crime, and especially homicide, on victim survivors. She's actually referred to closure as the F word for survivors. People talk about what is the issue with closure? You know, why is that the F word? And if you speak with homicide survivors, what in effect they will share with you is that for many of them, the word closure equates with it's done, it's over with, the door is shut. I can put it aside and move on. It's just, it's not possible. And one of the things that survivors need is to be able to talk and to tell it over and over when they tell it. They get new ideas to explore when they retell it. Sometimes they get insights that they have never had before that's actually helpful to them. But they can't do that silently inside themselves. They have to do that out loud. Dr. Armour said that runs counter to the impulse of survivors' friends and acquaintances, most of whom haven't lost a loved one in the same way. Part of the misconception on the part of the public is this sense that there must be something 
to stop the pain. And part of that grows out of how hard it is for family and friends to continue to see pain in front of them. We, the friends, the more distant family members, the producers of and listeners to true crime podcasts, want the pain to end not only for survivor's sake, but for our own. But in a kind of paradox, Armour said, even though survivors consider closure the F word, they still use it sometimes, maybe for lack of a better term, to describe something they want. In some unpublished research that she did, Armour surveyed survivors and professionals who work with survivors, like social workers or people who run support groups, about how they defined the term closure. She floated 20 different definitions in front of them, gleaned from her own research and studies others had written. Apprehending the offender, ending of the grief, ending criminal justice involvement, evening the score, end of anxiety about future damage. That last one, ending anxiety about future damage, means having some sort of reassurance that the perpetrator will not strike again. And that one rated highest as the definition survivors agreed with most, at 82%. Another definition, receiving answers to the question, why, fit exactly with what Martha Petrie in particular told me she wanted in the case. And also one of the things Donna Zenith said she never got. So do any of these things actually provide a sense of healing or peace for survivors? I I think the way we think about this is that there'll be an event that doesn't reflect the reality. The reality is the events keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. In unsolved cases like the murder of Mary and Bill, the events may be law enforcement re-interviews of survivors or new tests or reward being offered or articles in the media. But Armour has found that survivors can and do find healing and peace. One thing she's found can really help with that, having the chance to speak to the perpetrator, him or herself. Because of the fact that they were able to get some answers to questions. They were able to say some things directly to the person responsible for the pain that they carry. Though she's quick to add that she realizes that's not possible in every case, or even that every survivor would want that interaction or heal from it in the same way. In the many cases where that direct conversation can't or doesn't happen, being able to talk about the trauma and having people listen is what can lead to the most healing. Again, that's where I'd make a plea for listening to the survivor's voice, in part because I believe that they experience things that most of the rest of us don't ever have to experience. And their journey, regardless of the detail, is such that they have a wisdom because of where and how they've had to live. So much of this conversation with Marilyn Armour fit with things the Sisters of Mary and Bill told me during a meeting we had in Columbus in the summer of 2023. We were gathering to take stock of where we were three years and change into our work together to bring new attention to this case. 
Also, Martha and Pat had a meeting scheduled with Sergeant Terry McConnell and Detective William Gillette of the Columbus Police for right after our talk. It was going to be the first time Pat had ever gotten to meet with them face to face. We all decided that I would not join for that discussion because we wanted the police to be as open as possible about where they were with the investigation, not guarding themselves against me. I mean, would you, would you like to sit on this couch? The two well, of you? I have to sit down on it to see if I can get up from it. We met at the condo of Martha's brother, David. Pat and her husband drove seven hours from outside Philadelphia to get here. When they'd both arrived by the night before, it was the first time the two women had seen each other in more than 50 years. As we sat down to talk, I asked what that felt like. Martha started out by talking directly to Pat, or Patty, as she calls her. I had over 30 cards and letters from you, and I think I probably only responded once. That makes me feel horrible. But I, it was as if I couldn't respond to Patty's guilt, not guilt, sorrow, sadness, uh, experiencing my own. But then that left me without words for her or without comfort. I never was upset not getting back. It's just everybody moves on in life. And, you know, I've, I've learned in life that where I am on the journey now is where I am, you know, and I'm, I'm going in to make this be a positive experience. So as soon as we met, it was like uh, being... <laughs> I know. <laughs> and we haven't missed a beat. I told you that we, that we talked till like 9 o'clock last night. Yeah, and the only reason we stopped is because we went to the hotel. And of course, they didn't talk only about tragedy. So not only do we have the experiences of our siblings who were murdered, we have, and the aftermath of that with our parents and right. our family, but we also had 50 years of lived experience that was about children and grandchildren. So there were a myriad of stories to share. As the conversation turned to the police investigation, the three of us briefly reviewed what we'd heard in the nearly two years since we'd met with Columbus police at Martha's house. Martha and I had been trying to keep Pat updated on the big stuff along the way, but there were lots of details that frankly still confused all of us. I mean, Martha, maybe we can go back to how you felt after that initial police visit to your house two years ago. They stayed, and they stayed for a good long time, and they really listened to my concerns. But ever since then, there have been ongoing questions that I still have no idea. So at one point, they had three suspects, and they had to eliminate two of those suspects in order to submit the DNA, even to the familial DNA. And I don't know how they went about eliminating anybody except one person. That one person, of course, being Tom McGuigan, Bill's roommate. Martha then brought up the offer of help from the Porchlight Project. And Porchlight had even told them that we had a good case for Porchlight mm -hmm. to work on. And the Columbus detectives sort of poo-pooed that and said, no, 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 they had to do it in-house. Well, Wait, I but why? I still don't know, right. understand why. This is a question that we will be asking William Gillette. Why, why haven't you sent it on? Every, if these every people, avenue. If you have 100 cold cases and umpteen hundred homicides and you're understaffed, why can't you give it to Porchlight? And as far as I know, they still have not submitted it to genealogical testing. Martha said she's even given the police the name 
of what's considered one of the best forensic genealogy labs in the country. Could you please submit it there? And there's this whole thing about the money involved. If he said it costs $5,000 to do this, I would pay him right, to send right. it to the right lab. But he's not sending it to the right lab. So, but McConnell always assures me that it's going to be solved, that they that they have reason for it to be solved, but I don't know what those reasons are. Well, why would you wait? That, that's my question. If you have some of this in place, why wouldn't you go after this one? So you and I need to piggyback, and that's the kind of question we have to okay. ask. As I listened to the sisters talk, I was aware that the police and the potential prosecutors in this case probably believe they have very good reason to wait on forensic genealogy testing due to everything Mary Weston discussed earlier in this episode about having to try offender databases first when you're using federal funding. But on an emotional level, I also felt exactly what the sisters were feeling. It seemed wrong that they didn't have any say in when and how the DNA evidence in this case was tested. We're talking about the murders of their siblings 53 years ago. If there were a chance to move faster by using private funding, couldn't we just cut to the chase here once and for all? Martha, when we talked to James Renner, he said that if you were unsatisfied about the pace of in, the investigation, you could consider going directly to the prosecutor's office. At the time, you weren't ready to do that. And I'm just wondering, how do you feel about it now? I think I'm ready. I wasn't ready to move on to the prosecutor when Terry McConnell was getting back to me. If his messages are still so garbled that I don't understand, that I don't see a clear okay. line of mm -hmm. action, and that's what I'm, I think that's a, I should write this down, clear line of action. I'd like to know your clear line of action in a timetable. Do you see how I get really fierce about these things? Because it's just, <laughs> and that's how I talk to them too. I'm respectful, but I'm <laughs> right. serious about this. Right. It's been going on now for two and a half years. I asked Pat and Martha, what did they feel now were the chances the case would ever be solved? After these two and a half years of talking to police, after talking to Mary's and Bill's friends, after listening to the first six podcast episodes, here's Pat. After so many years, I kind of lost confidence, to be honest, that it was ever going to be solved. And, but in light of all this stuff, if they have a hope, then I should have a hope. But Martha was less optimistic. She said, after we first met with the police at her house two years ago. I was probably 80% certain that it would be solved. But because of current, like the things that I'm now thinking about in terms of your podcast, the questions that uh, I have more questions than I had previously, um, because of that and because of what I think is the obfuscation, is that the word? The, sort of fuzziness of some of the answers. Because of that, I'm probably 40% now. And she said she doesn't want to be at 40% because from everything she's heard, the DNA evidence is there to get some of the answers she's been wanting, a name at the very least. Whatever happened though, Martha and Pat said their time on the case over the last few years would have been worth it. Those efforts did help refocus the police for one thing on the case, and it gave the sisters a chance to hear stories they'd never heard before about their siblings, from friends who knew them during their final days. But they both said they were also hoping for something possibly even deeper to come out of our work together. 
So this is really important. We have stories that are worth telling. And even if we tell them 50 years later, they are still worth telling. Right. In the world of the universe and what is humane, stories need to be heard right. or need to be written. And so this story is worth telling, though it might cause us great pain to do so. And you know, sometimes you have to be willing to have a risk like that it might be painful. You know, this is like a like a personal catharsis almost. You know, you, you keep stuffing, you know, you stuff keep, down there. You bury it. Right. It just haunts you. So, so this has been this has been wonderful for me. On a practical level, they said they hoped their efforts to learn the truth would inspire others who are haunted by unresolved crimes. Well, understand that they can take action. That there are tools that they can use. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Even murders that have happened years ago. There are some people who wouldn't know about genealogical research. Right. Listening to the sisters, I realized they were giving voice to a few of the research findings Dr. Marilyn Armour mentioned in my interview with her. Survivors need to tell their stories and to be heard. And they want to help others avoid experiencing pain of the magnitude that they feel. Or if others do experience that pain, to be able to talk to people, to be able to get help. Martha told me she'd like to help a very specific group of survivors. There is a particular kind of grief that happens to identical twins, one who has been murdered. So I'm trying to create a network of twins helping twins through survival, and for those who have been murdered, a way to bring the case forward. She said she's already been in touch with a young man whose twin brother was murdered at the age of 20, exactly the age she and Mary were when Mary died. But wait, in case you were listening and thinking, oh no, no names? Only 40% confidence that this case will be solved? Well, there's a happy postscript to this discussion. That meeting that Pat and Martha had with the police right after our talk started with a bombshell. The Columbus police said they were finally submitting the DNA for forensic genealogy analysis to a lab in Utah. I'm just going to hit record. I had a Zoom meeting with Martha and Pat to talk about it more. So that's fantastic news. This and is what we, we've all been hoping for. Yes, people were happy about it. I mean, they yeah. expressed their satisfaction that they had come this far. Did he? Did they say when they're driving the samples? Next week, he said. Yeah. But Next we week. Don't know, okay. We don't know exactly when. Next week, as in the end of July, 2023, a little more than a month before this episode is scheduled to drop. But the hopeful thing with this the, this genealogy testing that they're doing is is worldwide. So even if someone has left the country or if somebody could be found worldwide. The police warned it could be weeks or it could be a year or more before the forensic genealogists were able to narrow the family tree to a reasonable number of suspects for the police to investigate. I'm getting that you feel much more hopeful after this yes. conversation. Uh, Martha, are you back up in your percentage? I'm back up to 80%. Back up to 80% confident 
that the case will be solved. And no longer feeling that she or Pat needed to go to the county prosecutor to get action. What are my own reflections on these three years of work? Well, I feel hopeful too. Probably more than I have in at least two years. Yes, there could be another long wait ahead. But it finally feels like by reaching the forensic genealogy milestone, every possible avenue is being pursued to identify the person or people who robbed Mary and Bill of life and the world of their kindness and intelligence. I'm grateful we've gotten to this point. And while I'm glad to have played some role in bringing attention to the case again, it's really the persistence of Martha Petrie and Pat Sprout that has given it new urgency. In a world where police departments are struggling to make new hires, recruitment efforts in the wake of highly publicized stories such as the George Floyd murder have made recruiting officers more difficult. I've learned that persistence and the advocacy of survivors Those are the things that can really make a difference between a cold case being solved and languishing indefinitely. I don't know if that's right. There are a lot of people out there who deserve answers in crimes against their loved ones who might not ever get those answers simply because their relatives happen not to have the time or resources or access to power to push as hard as these two sisters have. Given all that, the dwindling police resources the inequity of what gets solved and what doesn't, I do think police departments should consider being more open about information and welcoming of partnerships, especially in cases this old and this cold. What more might we have learned and how much more quickly if the Columbus police had opened their doors to me or the Porchlight Project or others who wanted to help? This is the last episode we're producing for now, but if, or let's say when, there's a break in the case, I promise we'll make an update. The story of Mary and Bill will never be over. But for now, let's give it an ending wrapped up not in shadow and mystery, but in the love and light they felt with each other. At that meeting between the three of us in Columbus, Martha handed me the lyrics to Mary's favorite song by an artist she and Bill both loved, George Moustaki. The title translates to the time to live. D'être libre, mon amour. Translation, we will take the time to live, to be free, you and I, my love, without plans nor routines. We can make our dreams real. Come on, here I am. I am waiting only for you. Everything is possible. Everything can be. Notre vie Je suis là, je n'attends que toi, tout est possible, tout est permis. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036 or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an Ideastream public media podcast in partnership with the Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, 
with production and sound design by John Nungesser. Our editors are Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury. Our digital team is Annie Wu, Ryan Lowe, and Dimitri Ashaki, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce, Ben Von Wildenhaus, Chad Crouch, Lobo Loco, and Wineland. Marketing is by Matt Urban, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash Bill. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun